In Europe, every American student, if more every American adult is regarded as someone who is just out to make a lot of money. Really, 16%, 16% of these students regarded their main goal and concern in life to make a lot of money. I'm quoting literally, make a lot of money. And you know what the top class, the top category, top category was? 78% of these American youngsters were concerned as they expressed it themselves with finding a meaning and purpose in their lives. You're listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. A roundup of this week's leading stories and industry comment from the world of investor relations. Hi, everyone. The psychologist Viktor Frankl considered the necessity of finding purpose to be the central theme in each human being's life. Since the financial crisis began, many business leaders and investors have begun to ponder the question of corporate purpose. Of course, whether firms have any other purpose than to generate money for their owners is not a new debate. But more and more, it appears a company's raison d'etre could be much more relevant in terms of its reputation and long-term financial success than previously thought. On today's program, Communicating Corporate Purpose. Purpose is of real interest to investors because those companies that are offering products and services that bring real value to individual societies or the planet, um, they have a competitive advantage. And companies that communicate around purpose, they're bringing investors together as part of a movement um, that, that will see the, the companies with the most authentic purpose rise to the top. I'll speak with Argyle Company Managing Director Ian Poole, about how IROs can present value beyond financial returns. And, do former Wall Streeters make the best IROs? From an outside perspective, it really looks like the financial analysts that move into a head of IR position, they're really pushing the, all the good buttons. We'll also take a look at new research that explores the benefits of hiring former analysts to run the IR department. That's coming up. But first, this week's ticker news. New York remains the most visited IR roadshow destination in 2017. According to IR Magazine's annual Global Roadshow Report, more than 75% of 750 respondents say they visited the East Coast City over the past 12 months. Its nearest rivals are Boston and London at about 64% and 61% respectively. Meanwhile, Copenhagen, Stockholm, and Denver all drop out of the full top 20 list. They've been replaced by Tokyo, Philadelphia, and Milan. Companies listed on the Luxembourg Stock Exchange and incorporated under Luxembourg law will now have to disclose their CSR policy. New rules require firms to integrate aspects of CSR into their long-term value creation strategy and describe how the CSR approach contributes to this goal. And finally, the winners of the 2018 Dutch IR Awards were announced last week. Best Company Awards went to ING Group, Insurance Group ASR, and Feed Company for Farmers. Best IR Professional Awards went to David Tyer of HR service provider Randstad, 
Victor Barino of computer chipmaker ASM International, and Richard Picar of discount gym chain Basic Fit. is changing. Uh, we are seeing uh, IR um, issues evolve and change. We're seeing the knowledge needed and responsibilities performed of IR professionals change as well. Uh, for example, uh, today 20% of NERI's 3,300 members have some sort of, some kind of uh, buyer sell side experience. That's a dramatic change from the traditional uh, roles uh, focused on communications and public relations. As NERI President Gary LeBranch noted at last year's IR Magazine Global Forum in Paris, more and more former sell-side analysts are becoming IR officers at the companies they once covered. Which raises the question, is their specialized experience enough to handle the diverse demands of the IR function? Rook Sandra Moldovan is an assistant professor of accountancy at Concordia University. Along with colleagues at the University of London and University of Toronto, she's been looking into the economic consequences of hiring Wall Street analysts as IROs. It really looks like the financial analysts that move into a head of IR position, they're really pushing the, all the good buttons. So we find that our disclosure improves in terms of our readability. And when I say disclosure, we were pretty much looking at the um, press releases that are then reported as uh, 8K filings. So these are uh, more easy to read. They're shorter. They contain uh, fewer complex words and a lower percentage of uncertain financial terms. Wait a second. I thought PR and communication specialists would have been better at making a company's press release more readable and understandable. Like really what we think is going on is just that the financial analysts that turned uh, IROs, they've been on the other side of the table and they pretty much have a deep understanding of what exactly you should be saying and how you should be saying it so that everyone understands. The researchers also noted changes in the sort of investor events being organized. We look at uh, analyst investor days, and we see uh, <clears throat> that these uh, AIROs come and organize more of these events, or start up start the company into uh, uh, this sort of line of uh, disclosure events. Besides disclosure benefits, the team also uncovered a variety of positive capital markets consequences. So we look at um, the number of analysts that are following the company. We look at the number of institutional investors that will hold uh, shares of the company. Uh, and then liquidity, sort of stock liquidity uh, measures such as the Amihood ratio and the bid-ask spread. And we find improvements uh, on these sides as well. Hmm. So what's the deal there? For these two, what we think is going on is maybe more than just improvements in disclosure because our models already control for that and the result is still there. So 
I have a feeling that there's a lot of um, sort of private communication going on between um, the IRO, uh, AIRO, and financial analysts and institutional investors, and perhaps again because the finance, the former finance, financial analyst was on the other side of the table, they're just better at keeping these friendly uh, relationships going on and just paying attention to what everyone needs. Ah, so they bring their contacts with them. That's part of the story, but then um, we don't report it here in the, in the paper, but we have run uh, tests where we just eliminate all the financial analysts that are revolving. You know, for example, financial analysts that come and um, get a job into companies they used to follow immediately uh, before switching. We eliminate those uh, analysts in some additional analysis, but the results are still there. So I don't think it's necessarily a question of just being friendly to the other analysts that are following this particular company because you've also been one of them uh, maybe uh, the previous year or two years ago. Mm-hmm. It's really more a question of broad networks. So it's not um, what we find and what you see in the paper is not an effect of these revolving door analysts. It's really a broad effect of being a former analyst, not necessarily just covering the company you're, uh, you're now joining as an IRO. And uh, invest, uh, institutional investors are just maybe able to, uh, to get more information from you or to, again, trust you more or trust that you will be there to uh, sort of take care of this relationship and maintain this relationship. So... Hiring former Wall Street insiders is likely to lead to significant improvements in disclosures, analyst coverage, the number of institutional investors, and liquidity. What's not to like? Moldovan is quick to point out the limitations to her analysis. I would not like to uh, have a bad relation with uh, you know, anyone who's a PR or other kind of job. So let me just add that the real world is just a lot more complex than what we are able to capture in our models. For example, I have been reading a lot of uh, the IR magazine articles, and some of them are saying that former financial analysts might have uh, maybe a hard time uh, adjusting to uh, to the corporate life and to hmm. actually communicating just with their um, with the CEO, with the CFO. So like. The next, uh, the next hierarchic rank, um, and trying to keep everyone happy inside. So they might be too focused on the outside, on the users. Um, but those kind of frictions, they're not something we can pick up. What I think could be a takeaway is that communication matters and likely uh, financial expertise also matters. So all these um, former analysts, they have uh, like a CFA and they're very um, able to discuss, you know, the financial situation of the company and uh, the accounting aspect and the financial um, uh, changes that the CEO maybe likes to do or would like to do. Um, so I 
think that plays a big role. Um, the capital markets want and probably trust someone who, more someone who uh, is able to talk their language. Last week in Davos, the world's largest money manager told reporters at CNBC that companies need a sense of social purpose to achieve their full potential. I believe the, the involvement in a community to have a purpose is vital for long-term survivability but long-term profitability. There's something new beginning to appear in U.S. disclosure documents. More and more reporters are integrating information on purpose into the heart of their corporate communications. As consumers seek authenticity from the brands they patronize, it seems investors also want to understand the sustainability of the business model. That's because more and more, it seems that sustainability is closely linked to the ability to create value beyond financial returns. For example, value for society by addressing some of the challenges it faces. Research shows that purposeful organizations outperform their competitors. But research also suggests that people have plenty of cynicism towards business leaders who speak about purpose. So how can firms present their corporate purpose? My guest today is Argyle Company's Managing Director, Ian Poole. Argyle recently examined how 10 major U.S. companies highlight their corporate purpose in their annual report. You can download the research at irmagazine.com. Ian Poole, welcome to the ticker. It's terrific to be here, Jeff. Thank you. Ian, what is Argyle's corporate purpose? So our corporate purpose is to help the companies that we work with communicate more more effectively with their investors through their annual reports, sustainability reports, and proxy statement. Because in our view, even the best examples of companies that communicate with their investors, they will do so in a way that um, isn't consistent from one report to the next. And that can be from the superficial. Simply, their reports will look different to actual substantive differences in context. And it doesn't, it doesn't read well if in the annual report you say our priority is opening new stores and in the proxy statement the leadership is, is compensated against a different set of criteria. So we see a lot of value in aligning um, companies' disclosures. So we have design teams, we have advisory teams. We are quite unique in that we have attorneys that have worked in-house and so we're able to draft and cast a critical eye across these disclosures from the outside. We have a pair of investor relations professionals who've engaged with investors for much of their career. I've come from Europe and we have um, another couple of members of the team with with design and and communication experience. Uh, We then go on to prepare these reports, to execute them, get them printed, get them filed with the SEC. And importantly, we do a lot of web work as well because the the internet is terrific, as I know you guys know at IR Magazine, because you can quantify who um, who is visiting, 
these websites, how long they're spending there, what elements they're interested in seeing. And in terms of reporting, it's really valuable too because while in the past printed reports have been presented with people leaving um, reporters wondering whether they're read or not, how much time is spent with them. Um, now, uh, with the Internet, you can actually use the Internet as an engagement tool, ask people what they appreciate about your reports, where they might be improved, and actually ask for feedback, which for us has a, has a lot of value. Since moving to the United States, I've always found there's this dissonance in annual reports and proxy statements and other disclosures whereby groups will say, in, in their investor disclosures, you know, we're here to maximize returns for shareholders. And on the other hand, they'll have signs over their store saying, we're here to serve our customers well. And it's two kind of different messages. And one of the things that I appreciate about sustainability that we're seeing creep into disclosures gradually and purpose is that they can really align the interests of all parties, and I think that that's really valuable. So it's an area that we've been keen on since day one. Argyle has been around since 2014, and having a background working on disclosures in Europe, we see far more of these elements in European disclosures than we do in the USA. So we were excited to talk about the ideas with some of our um, some of our clients and um, and to see a few of them adopt the ideas. I remember a time when if you weren't talking shareholder value, maximizing profit, then you just weren't talking. I, I wonder, Jeff, sincerely, if it's not because groups are already returning all that they can to shareholders and without wanting to be too cynical, I think that some groups are looking for ways to get an edge on others um, in, in terms of their longevity and the, the longevity of their business money to generate future returns. And purpose what they contribute to society ensures that they will be around. There's research in the UK that in the 1970s, on average, for every £100 of profit, £10 were distributed to shareholders. And today, £70 is returned to shareholders. So the shareholders have kind of won. And maybe the next battleground, I don't know, is going to be longevity and which corporations are around for the, for the longest amount of time. Earlier, you mentioned U.S. companies have been slower than European ones to adopt concepts like sustainability and purpose. Why do you think that is? I think a lot has to do with regulation and obviously things like say on pay and pay ratio next year here in the United States, those are, those appeared first in the United States or a new legislative regulatory ground that's been broken here and we'll see Europe perhaps adopt pay ratio in the future and they've already adopted say on pay. In, in 2017 last year, the European, um, Europeans rolled out the non-financial reporting directive that required companies to report on ESG issues, the 6,000 largest European companies, and that in turn generates further interest from investors. And what we're hearing from our clients is that a lot of investors are talking to them about this stuff on their corporate governance roadshow and, and similar. And so the, the, their disclosures are reactive in that they're including these elements and catching up to their European peers. <laughs>
to be really tactical about what we face when we go in and, and work with companies on purpose, I find that in, in Europe, where I'm from, this notion of an annual report mm-hmm. is this several hundred page document that contains the legal information, um, commentary on the company's performance for the year, and it's all sort of under one hood. The way that... Um, companies prepare information in the United States is different. There's obviously a purely financial report, which is the 10K, a company that talks about the corporate governance organization and how executives are rewarded, which is the proxy statement. In the other corner, increasingly, we're seeing sustainability reports, although that's not a requirement. And some companies will have a sort of a glossy wrap. And we find, and I think that most of our peers would agree with this, if you're working with the corporate governance people or the annual report people, they will put a lot of focus on telling the story in their space. But it can be hard to tell one cohesive value story across all of the proposal or all of the, um, all of the documents that the company produces. So if we're going in and a company already has a clearly articulated purpose, values that are derived from it, a behavioral structure that's derived from it, we can talk to them about how to bring that to bear in their reporting. And you can see in the examples in the document that we published, companies that are doing that really, really well. Um, what more commonly, what, what will commonly happen is you'll say to them, you should also be doing this in the sustainability report, also be doing it in the proxy statement and elsewhere. And it's difficult for groups to get that message across all of their reports. And it tends to be companies like GE that really embrace their reporting as a whole that do a good job of communicating that. But I think that what a lot of the the reporters would say in the United States is that that takes resources to really get everybody on the same page, because oftentimes these reports are prepared by different individuals in different departments. And there's just a a logistical challenge um, to getting to getting everybody on the same page to communicate clearly. It's more about responding to the requirement than a focus on a, on a broader story. But I think that the companies with a strong and clear purpose message that align everything that they do against that purpose, we tend to know those that they are. So when it comes to meeting an IR professional in a company with purpose, and we're talking about how they can communicate that to investors, I think that they already get it. What we would bring, for example, is new ideas on how to communicate it. Obviously, there's a much broader macro question that we're not involved with, which is going into a company they don't have a clearly articulated purpose message and saying to them, you know, that's the missing element in the value story. Because when we're communicating an annual report, there are a few things that we look at to communicate how a company creates value. And we usually do it in this order. It would start with purpose. You know, this is why this organization exists. Then it would be the strategy. What is our strategy to make money while meeting our corporate purpose? Performance against that strategy, how the company has performed, how much money it's made, how much benefit society has derived. In there, there can be key performance indicators, which are financial and non-financial. What non-financial returns is the, the company creating? Um, corporate governance, leadership, the tone from the top, who is overseeing the organization, And then as an extension of corporate governance, we usually talk about sustainability and um, how the board is overseeing sustainability, ensuring that the company will be around for a long term, for the long term. And for us, 
That's the value creation story from beginning to end. And those companies that have strong purpose, they generally get that, and they'll be ready to, um, to disclose that information in their, um, in their annual reports or similar. Can you give me a couple of examples, elements that make up a believable statement of corporate purpose? Sure. So I, I think that, I mean, obviously, as, as many companies as there are in different fields, they would all have um, different corporate purposes to advance humanity. I think that those corporate purposes that are the easiest to understand and grasp are those that are clear and actionable. Um, and a couple of examples that I would give of companies in a sector that has been much derided would be financial services and banking. And I think that there are two really good examples, one from the United States, one from Europe. Um, both Bank of America and the Lloyds Banking Group in the United Kingdom have a purpose which goes along the lines of helping people prosper, helping Britain grow, helping Americans invest and and realize fulfilling financial lives. And both of those companies have taken a similar approach in their annual reports to showing how what their corporate purpose means in action. And if you look through Bank of America's corporate report, it goes through examples of um, individuals and corporations that have benefited from Bank of America's banking services. And in the United Kingdom, Lloyd's has done something similar they talk about helping Britain prosper and talk about the economic benefit derived from Lloyd's Banking Services, retirement benefits for retirees, investments, lending for property, lending for small businesses, okay. etc. So it really gets into the, the mechanics of how the, the banks are working. A final example in the same sector that I think is really good. And financial services work so well because we all rely on them in the, the, the Western world and, um, and they're well organized and structured. Final example would be First Republic Bank out of California. And they have a series of individual stories of um, individual investors, people starting companies, people setting out to buy a home and the role that First Republic Bank has played in their life. So you have that economic benefit. But where First Republic goes a little step further is that they'll talk about the wonderful service, the relationship with First Republic Bank. And I, I especially like that approach because it shows how purpose has worked for those individuals in the context of a report for shareholders that at the same time is persuading investors of, um, of the, the good work that the company is doing. Yes, yeah, because otherwise, if you don't give examples, it's, it's, it's kind of like cheap talk, essentially. It's just, yeah, uh, it is. It is. And it's like purpose wash, just having a statement. To purpose wash. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Again, though, you say, uh, you, you make the point that even when you're giving these examples, you still have to weave all that into um, uh, basically maximizing, not purpose, but maximizing yeah, profit. You do. Yeah, I think that you do. I mean, the same the same rules apply, but there shouldn't be, you know, it's perfectly appropriate that a that a company that is providing a service that society needs and is doing it exceptionally well should generate good returns for investors. I don't think I don't think that there's the dissonance there when a company is talking about purpose and the the good that it does and how it contributes to to society. And it creates profit. I, 
I mean, we personally don't see a dissonance there. I think that where the dissonance comes in is if a company puts profit above all else and doesn't consider non-financial returns. There is some research that says, you know, companies that have a purpose and, and presumably communicate that purpose do okay financially, they, at least in the long term. And it feels modern, doesn't it? And, you know, the IPO letter that, um, that Google published talked about, don't look at us for quarterly returns. We're here to do no harm and uh, create innovative products and solutions. I mean, it turns out that they have done very, very well. <laughs> I beg your pardon, on a quarterly basis. Um, but that's a really modern way of going about things, saying we're here to do a great deal of good and the money will come. I suppose that's a, that's a looser way of putting it than most companies would. But that kind of narrative we see increasingly from these IPO companies, I guess, on, uh, it, it could be seen as a justification for, for companies being uni- unicorns and having woolly, woolly business models. But in a few cases where a company is really meeting a corporate purpose well, I think it's fair to say that it's, uh, it's worked out well. And you, yeah, you, you really want to stress that purpose doesn't come at the expense of profit. For, for IR professionals, beyond theoretical ideas about communicating purpose, it goes back to investor appetite for an understanding of, of their business and how, um, and how it creates value for shareholders. We published that report a few months ago. We've had a lot of interest and and are speaking more and more with companies about corporate purpose. I think organizing and presenting how you create value clearly is something that IR professionals should be looking at and either how well their presentation decks, their um, investor roadshows, their annual reports tell their value creation story with purpose as a part of that because it doesn't stand alone. That's all for this week's Ticker Podcast. Do note there's still time to book your seat for the IR Magazine Awards Canada. That's coming up February 7th at the fabulous Royal York Hotel in Toronto. The gala dinner remains the Canadian IR community's largest annual gathering and celebrates the success of those individuals and companies that are leading the way in IR across Canada. Meanwhile, the IR Magazine Forum Canada 2018 takes place on the morning of the awards. This highly interactive conference is a great opportunity to discuss IR trends and best practices with your peers. Thanks for listening. In Montreal, I'm Jeff Cossette. You've been listening to the Ticker Podcast from IR Magazine. For free access to all the latest global investor relations news and analysis, register at irmagazine.com or download the app.